Welcome to episode 117 of the Video Game History Hour. Uh, this is Frank Cifaldi from the Video Game History Foundation. Um, we have a pretty fun show for you today. Uh, joining me once again is uh, Rachel Weil. Rachel, how are you doing? Hi, I'm great. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, we're really glad to have you back. And uh, I'm really excited to discuss this particular topic because, uh, well, we just did this, first of all, so it's really fresh in our minds. But, um, but I'm really excited that we finally managed to uh, uh, have a project together because uh, I, I think we've always sort of uh, admired each other's work from a distance, but never figured out how to intersect those two yeah. things. Yeah, it was great to have the opportunity to collab. Yeah. Um, so today we're talking about a piece of uh, maybe fairly unlikely uh video game tech so uh strap in everyone um we're gonna talk about the nintendo knitting machine um rachel why don't you start us off like what what generally do people sort of understand and know about this machine because this isn't like something we discovered out of the ether (laughs) right yeah you know i heard about the knitting uh, Nintendo knitting machine, probably around the same time a lot of folks in the video game kind of collecting community or NES community heard about it, which was probably, gosh, 10 years ago now. Um, a flyer was posted. I think on, I saw it on Facebook. Um, and it, it was just this flyer that said, you know, sort of now you're knitting with power. And it now shows you're it. knitting with power. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's in that like classic, you know, future, uh, NES magazine ad style. It looks pretty legit. And it's for, you know, what looks to be an NES powered knitting machine. And when I first saw it, I thought, this is fake. This can't be real. <laughs> um, on the one hand, I'm like the perfect target audience as someone who, you know, is both an NES collector slash developer and a knitter. I thought this is this is an amazing overlap of my interests. Uh, I and then I started thinking, is this a good idea? I don't know. Is this real? And I didn't really think too much about it for like a decade. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, oh, that, that was sort of an interesting goof that someone posted. Uh, I don't know if that's real or not. And then uh, fast forward to 2023. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then, from my perspective, yeah, I so. I had known about the existence of a Nintendo knitting machine um, because I'm the weirdo who's digging through like scanned newspaper archives and things like that um, for uh, things about the history of the, well, the NES specifically. Um, Let's just get that on the table. We're both nerds for this system. Other things too, but we are NES nerds. Um, And so I, I had known previously that Nintendo exhibited a knitting machine um, at uh, the 1987 Winter CES. Um, that's that's the January show. Um, and just a sort of reminder of the 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 sort of how CES worked at this time. There were two a year. There was one in January. There was one in June. Um, January tended to be more of the the wild card show um, uh, in Vegas, where it was kind of throw everything at the wall and and see what. Uh, store buyers might be interested in. So um, this might be where like 
I don't know, a company announces that they licensed uh, some cartoon that's on the air. Uh, I don't know, Tom and Jerry Kids or something. I, I don't know where that one came from, but Tom and Jerry Kids, right? We've licensed Tom and Jerry Kids and uh, we're, we're, we're planning on making a game. Uh, are you interested? And and they might not have even started development yet. Um, so, and 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 the, the point of the show is to see sort of like, should we pursue this in a lot of cases? And then, the, the June version of CES is in Chicago. And for the most part, that's like, yo, this is what's coming out on Christmas. You know, like get your <laughs> orders in now. Um, so the knitting machine we knew was at that winter January show. Um, we knew that newspapers reported on it, um, just that it existed and was there. That's about all we knew. Um, I had found reference and I can't find it again. I wish I could. Um, I think it was a newspaper article, in fact, um, to someone from Sega um, who was just starting to market the master system um, talking smack about the knitting machine. They're like, yeah, they've got a knitting machine. We've got 3D glasses. (laughs) (laughs) That was kind of the content of it. And that turned out to be a huge success for Sega. Oh, yeah. They sold (laughs) at least 37 uh, 3D glasses. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And then um, and then that's all I knew until this exact same flyer appeared online. Um, now, that flyer appearing online, I knew was legit uh, because that was posted by uh, one Howard Phillips of of, of uh, former Nintendo uh, fame. Howard and Phillips fame, I guess, if you're a, a Nintendo power reader. Um, and so he posted that flyer. It's the only one anyone had ever seen. Um Steve Lynn, who's on our board and has been on the show in the past, um, actually worked out um, acquiring some of Howard's paperwork from him, uh, including that flyer, uh, as well as the flyer for the um, the AVS, you know, the uh, the prototype NES that they showed in early 85. Um, so Steve acquired that, donated it here once we existed because we didn't exist yet. Um, and so we actually are in possession of this flyer and we don't know of another copy of it, which is kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, that's kind of all we knew, right. Looking at it um, at, 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 before we, we sort of uh, started this, this collab project together to dig deeper into it. Um, so I think, you know, a good place to go from here um, is maybe what what do you think we should go let's 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 branch our paths here right sure. uh, should, should, we, <laughs> should we sort of investigate this um from from the angle of like what else surrounding this thing did we know or should we sort of uh uh go into our chronology of like how we got interested in this thing again um i wonder if we want to start with just an analysis of what's in the flyer and then um, maybe from there we can talk about starting to collect other pieces of evidence. Does that sound? That sounds great. And I would like to kick it over to you then because you have, you had a previous knitting experience where I did not. Sure. Sure. Um, All right. So I guess this is the part where we try to describe a flyer. <laughs> we'll link to it in word. the show notes or something. Yeah, we'll, we'll, it'll, it'll be there, folks. Um, but so when I saw this flyer, and of course, as Frank and I started talking about the knitting machine again more recently, I really studied it to see what was in this picture. And uh, just close your eyes and imagine, if you will. Um, 
what we see in the flyer, aside from the copy, marketing copy and stuff like that, there's a photo of a monitor, um, an NES and a knitting machine with a piece of a garment attached to it. And you can see that the the knitting machine, like what is the connection between the knitting machine and the NES? There's a controller caddy that's kind of parked on the back of the knitting machine. And it, it's not really clear if the machine is going to be interacting with the controller or the controller is sending data somehow to the NES. You know, there's some sort of uh, port or expansion or something, right? Um, that is the, what I imagine for what it's worth. I think yeah. it's worth mentioning. Like I imagine this very slow moving, like Rob mechanism that like broke a lot. Right. Right. Yeah. And there's this, also this question too, of like, does the knitting machine move on its own or not? Um, when, you know, it, to the uninitiated, when you hear the phrase knitting machine, you might think of something that, you know, you press a button and a sweater pops out. Um, there are some pretty uh, sophisticated knitting machines today that that will do something similar. But um, when you're looking at something from this era, a lot of these knitting machines were, um, you know, hand operated. So they're machines in the way that a Snoopy snow cone machine is a machine. You still have to turn the crank, right? Um, so, you know, I, I see some evidence that this might be mechanical, but it might be electromechanical. Um, and then the screen is pretty obscured. It's at quite quite an angle, so we can't see exactly what's on it. But when I look at it, I, I kind of recognize what it is. And Frank, I, I think you did too, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this this is kind of what where my interest came from was um, one of my areas of research is unreleased software for the NES. And so um, I've been building the sort of database, there might be a book someday, I don't know, but um, of software that I I, I, I have tracked um, that is maybe lost. And, and I kind of had on my spreadsheet, you know, knitting machine software, question mark, right? Like, <laughs> like, is there unique software for this thing? And the only clue we have to that, um, I should say had, uh, before this research began was, uh, the software on this flyer, um, which is, uh, very interesting, uh, if, if you're examining this cold, because, uh, that software is actually knitting software that was released in Japan, um, for the NES's disc drive, uh, disc drive add-on. Uh, it's called, uh, I am a teacher, Super Mario, no sweater. It's a it's a disc that has knitting patterns uh, for sweaters with the Super Mario characters and also a bunny and a kitty. Um, and so my initial thought was, okay, did this machine maybe come out in Japan and no one's seen it? No, that would have come up by now. Right. Um, but, but that is sort of the first clue we had, right, Rachel, that, that like, okay, that this software that that came out the year before that is knitting related, even though there isn't a knitting machine, does seem to be actually related to this machine in some way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I have a copy of this game uh, that I I got while I was doing graduate research in Japan, and yeah, essentially uh, you start up the the disc and you can choose one of I think you know sixteen or twenty uh, different patterns, and you can kind of add in your own measurements for the garment and um, you get this kind of row by row account of the pattern. Um, Cause I think the question is like, why do you really, why do you need software for knitting patterns? Knitting patterns are typically 
you know, printed out in a, in a book or something like that. Is it better to have it in software? Well, I guess if the NES was knitting it for you, then yeah, it would be way better as software. Um, but I could see some advantages just generally for knitting software. One of those being the kind of custom garment sizes. You could specify the arm length or the chest dimensions or things like that. And then also... Um, the game actually keeps track of what row you're on. So if there are any knitters listening, you know that for picture knitting, you have to really be diligent about keeping track of what row you're on. Thinking about, you know, an analogy would be like doing pixel art uh, from the bottom up, line by line. If you mess up a line, you skip one, you know, the whole picture is ruined. So this software did actually keep track of what row you're on, even after you powered down and turned the system back on, it would keep uh, tabs on what row you're on. So that was pretty handy. I mean, you could just also write down what row you're on. So I don't know how like super innovative it was, but that was kind of a nice feature. I mean, this is still, you know, the mid eighties. This is a time where, um, you know, we're just coming off of like all of the the sort of pre crashy game consoles being like maybe they're a computer. So uh, there, there's some sense to it, but uh, I'm realizing as I'm speaking, I'm, I'm jumping the gun a little bit. So I'm gonna I'm gonna back off from that line of thinking right now, um, and and kind of explain like how we got here and why we started looking at this. Right. So um, I'm doing this research. I'm looking at this flyer. I'm looking at that software. I'm seeing there's a connection there. And I'm kind of staring at this machine um, in the photo because um, that's uh, I don't know if you find this is true in your research, Rachel, but I find like staring at things for a long time, sort of like if you've ever seen the show House, like when he <laughs> stares at his blackboard, you know, <laughs> I actually find that staring at things for a long time and hoping an answer happens actually does work. Sometimes. Yeah, just like mentally dissociate. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was doing that with the flyer. Maybe the physical one, I don't remember. It's in very, very uh, protected uh, mylar, as Rachel can attest to. Mm -hmm. So we, we handle it. Um, and I was looking at this thing, and I'm like, did Nintendo make this? Or did someone else make this, the machine? And, you know, yes, Nintendo is was a toy company, plastic toy company. Um, but by 87, they're kind of not, right? Like, they they've more or less become a video game company by this point with the success of the Famicom. Um, and so I was like, I, I wonder if someone else made this. I wonder if maybe this is a toy uh, that exists in Japan already and they were going to maybe market it as an add-on for the Nintendo. Um, and so, you know, when, when I'm thinking about this, I'm like, well, who published those weird discs? It wasn't Nintendo. It was Royal. Um, Royal was uh well we didn't know what royal was until we looked into it but uh but I, I looked it up royal industries co limited uh they went out of business in 2014 so don't, don't do not try to go find them they went bless, out of business bless the wayback machine by yeah, the way bless the wayback <laughs> machine yes but also they went out of business the same year that howard phillips posted that flyer so think about that mm. Mm, something there there's nothing <laughs> there don't go to that. um so Royal Industries was, an, uh, what did we decide to call them? An appliance company? I think toys and appliances, yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. So they, the, their main lines of business, um, at least from my Wayback Machine scrape of their 2002 website, uh, was essentially knitting equipment uh, and toys. Um, and so I was like, okay, I think we're on to something. The website, uh, very remarkably, 
um, had a catalog of all of the toys they had ever released, um, which I was like, oh, my God, this is it. This is the answer, except uh, it starts in 1990. And they very clearly existed uh, before that because of the the discs that were released. Um, and did we did we say what year those? I don't think we did say what what year those discs came out. They were eighty six, right? Right, they were eighty six. Right, exactly. They were they were um, I think August eighty six, something like that. So like four or five months before CES. Um, so this was something that was on the market in Japan already, somewhere actually. Yep. We don't and know it exactly. did it did come out. We don't know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> where it was sold retail wise, but we do know that it came out. Right. I mean, and that's, a, that's its own weird thing. Cause we don't know how these things were sold. We know one path, which we'll get to, but like, you know, the Japanese research into these discs, um, points out that it's like maybe the only Famicom disc, uh, without a barcode. Um, it's something that didn't appear in game magazines at all. So there was some weird other venue these were sold in that we're not entirely clear on. Like it might've been like hobby shops or something, whatever the equivalent is in Japan. We don't know. Um, but anyway, I was able to sort of confirm, you know, through that way back scrape that Royal actually did market a toy knitting machine in 1990. It looks similar ish to the Nintendo knitting machine, but it's not it. So Wayback was, you know, wonderful, but but not quite the smoking gun that tied the two together um, until I did some uh, very, very deep, weird Googling and um, actually found an earlier knitting machine um, from Royal. Don't didn't know what year turned out to be like 88. Um, but essentially, I found a toy knitting machine marketed by Royal in 88, which is a year after the CES that. Uh, looks to be about like 80 90 percent the nintendo knitting machine right i mean yep, yep. rachel do you kind of want to go through i see you're on the same slide i am <laughs> <laughs> do you kind of want to explain like you know at a glance comparing this toy to the machine what what are your observations yeah so um when you sent the photo to me initially i was like oh yep this is it slam dunk <laughs> um it's not exactly the same but uh what we see and first of all i'll, I'll step back and say the knitting machine toy if you want to go back to the close your eyes and imagine this exercise um it has sort of a, a bed of needles and then it has a carriage with a handle that moves back and forth. Um, and comparing the toy that Frank found online versus the one that's in the flyer photo, it's you know it's a, a white needle bed, a white carriage with a pink sticker, pink uh, tension dial, which changes the tension of the stitches. Um, you know the handle. It looks it looks very similar. I would say like a couple of differences I spot right away are. You know, just minor things like, oh, the shape of the handle is slightly different. Um, the coloration of the needles is slightly different. And uh, obviously, there's no NES connected to to the the uh, Royal Knitting Machine. Um, and uh, it, it's also smaller, right? Uh, so I yeah. think it has fewer needles than the Knitting Machine in the flyer. And, and actually, this is a kind of an interesting point that the the knitting machine, the flyer has quite a lot of needles 16, in the needle yeah. bed. Um, and I've actually never seen like a toy knitting machine that that, that was that large. Um, so kind of an interesting difference, but otherwise to me, it looks, looks like a dead ringer. 
Yeah, that's 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 a dang knitting machine right there. <laughs> um, so I I found evidence of one, and um, so I, I that the one existed, but it, like none for sale or anything like that. And um, there's a website called Auckfans, and it, and it scrapes um, Japanese auction listings, uh, you know, kind of after they're done. And I think you pay them to see what the price was. I think that's 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 the Auckfans business. Um, and the last one that Auk fans had seen was uh, three years prior. <laughs> and uh, so I was like, oh, I want one of these, but I don't know that any are ever going to come up for sale. So I did a saved search and um, I swear like a week later, one popped up <laughs> and I bought it um, and it came in. I was very excited. Uh, another couple weeks goes by and another one pops up and I bought it. <laughs> I'm going to corner the market on these. <laughs> um, actually, I sent that one to Rachel very excitedly. Um, and then uh, I have not seen one since. I still get daily e- uh, emails letting me know if one has popped up. Nope. We have the only two that have been sold, at least with the the correct uh, name to it. Um, and yeah, I, I sent it to Rachel and I'm like, Rachel, you know, we should, I don't know. I was like, this is your jam, right? Like, <laughs> I'm not imagining this. Like, this is exactly what you exist for. Yep. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> so that sort of started us on on a research path of like, okay, there's more to this, right? We we sort of have the Nintendo knitting machine. Um, it got close enough to market that they at least made something. Um, like again, let, let me let, let me be clear: this knitting machine, there's nothing Nintendo about it. You know what I mean? There's mm-hmm. not there there's not any Nintendo like branding on it. There's not a, a, a way to hook it to your Nintendo. It's just a machine that that knits and it comes with a book that tells you how to like put patterns on the machine but there's no mario there's no like hey look out for the famicom disc right it's just a toy um so although interesting right when we got our boxes uh, with our two knitting machines one of them did have a reference to nintendo and one of them did not a a very hidden (laughs) reference on the box art um the the box the knitting machine comes in this kind of this photo of a girl in her room with a knitting machine and TV and she's got a bookshelf and all, you know, just like a normal kind of bedroom setup. And on the bookshelf is a set of knitted stuffed animals. I think they're like sushi, maybe. Um, they're like little like oni- onigiri. Yeah. yeah. And one of them has a sticky note that says, I hate to study in Japanese. And the other one has a, st- and you have to like look really closely. This, this is a very small detail in the background. <laughs> one of them says, I hate to study. And the other sticky note says, I love Famicom. And Ooh, then we have another, <laughs> we have another box that where the, I hate to study sticky note is there, but the, the Famicom one has been replaced. Yeah. <laughs> this is very odd. It was like, are they giving a little shout out? Is this like, what's up with that? It, right. it was super interesting to me yeah is, is <laughs> that a, like well and also yeah you did gasp i remember this <laughs> and and let's be clear too that like the one that was the that that uh that had the famicom reference on it um we're i don't know 90 percent sure that's an earlier version of the packaging the, the other one's a revision to it um and we, so, we do have the date of the photo because right under that is a stack <laughs> of nibon manga collections dated 1988 <laughs> so we know that as of 88 they're taking a photo saying that the famicom is cool and then uh, sometime <laughs> later they, they they like very intently uh <laughs> we're sure replaced just the one pillow not both of them <laughs> they replaced mm-hmm. the one pillow so 
hmm, suspicious. <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, as we're sort of like trying to draw more connections, you know, because this, this is like, I don't know, like both of our uh, eyes just started glowing red and we entered like research mode in our robot brains at this point. Like, OK, research mode. What what can we gather? Um, and we actually with some help from uh, uh, Brian Parker, who has somehow not been on the show. We should fix that. Um, A.K.A. Bunny Boy, uh, a, a NES homebrew author himself and uh, the creator of the, the AVS um, uh, Nintendo system, the not the Nintendo or Nintendo one. <laughs> I was going to say, wow, yeah, the, the the HDMI based NES, the, the, the uh, and the power yeah, pack and the power pack. The legend. The first, the, yes. Yes. Absolute legend. First, first, uh, first. I'm not going to say first, first flash card, but first one that uh, was viable, maybe. Um, he discovered because uh, he's also really interested in this knitting machine um, and in fact tried to make his own with with the the mild amount of clues that we have and, and showed him showed it at Portland Retro a few years ago. But um, I knew he was interested. I was talking to him about it. He's like, hey, here's a patent, um, which, uh, yeah, we and you kind of discovered it at the same time. And um, so we found a patent in Japan filed by Royal. Um, doesn't say the word Nintendo in it, but do you kind of want to go through what it does show? Yeah, I mean, it might as well say Nintendo in it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so the Japanese patent has a couple of drawings. One of them is just a straight up a Famicom controller. I mean, it's it's pretty distinctive. Yeah, I mean, the text in a patent like this, because you want to be vague, is just like computer-aided right. controller or something, right? Right, right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's the, you know, the signature D-pad and B&A buttons. Like, it, it's a Famicom controller. Um, we also get an illustration of the knitting software that looks both like the one in the flyer and the the software that was actually released, the Super Mario sweater. Um, and then we get a kind of top-down view of the knitting machine with a controller caddy connected up to a sort of nondescript monitor. So it's like everything that's in the flyer, you know, it kind of corroborates everything we sort of had a hunch about. Um, and it's it's filed by Royal. And, in, and that includes how we suspected the thing might interact with the, the software, right? That's right. So, so that was the other thing that was maybe a little bit of an unknown at first was what is how does it work with the NES exactly? And the, the patent spells that out. Um, so essentially uh, the caddy has a little plunger mechanism, kind of like a pinball machine or something. And when you move the knitting carriage across the needle bed, so you're physically moving it with your hand, um, it triggers that little flipper mechanism to physically press the B button. And in the the software that was released for Famicom Disk System, pressing the B button uh, advances the row. And so it makes sense that as you um, pull the carriage across the needle bed, which is knitting a row, um, the software is automatically advancing the line for you. So it's pretty like dumb technology. Right. <laughs> yeah. This, this like... whole thing is an A button presser. Like yeah, this whole, yeah. it's an elaborate A, uh, or B button, whatever it is. It's, it's a, a lot it's like, a one a, button like Rob, right? And yeah. like Rob is just like a really fancy way to press a button. Oh, that was uh, another like, like, um, sort of hopeful road that we went down that you went down was like, wait, Rob has a caddy. (laughs) It wasn't exactly the same. I actually bought uh, on eBay. I bought just the caddy from a Rob system 
Um, I think it was busted, so I didn't feel I didn't like sacrifice a rob for this uh, endeavor. <laughs> but yeah, I got a rob and kind of looked at how that plunger mechanism worked, and I, I think it's probably quite similar to how it would have worked on the Nintendo knitting machine as well. So really all this is doing is saving you from having to press the button with your finger. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's keeping it in sync with like what's on screen and what you've actually knitted. So I guess it's better than nothing. <laughs> right. Um, and then, you know, kind of remarkably as we were uh, doing this, um, Hubs, Dustin Hubbard, who we've had on the show in the past in uh, the episode talking about magazine scanning. Um, well, he did his thing. He scanned a magazine. Uh, it was it was an issue of um, I don't know if Famitsu was weekly at this point, whatever Famitsu was called in 1987, uh, which is the big Japanese games magazine. Um, so we didn't have like video game magazine coverage of that CES yet because there were no video game magazines at least in the US um but there was there were a couple in Japan and uh they would often maybe always send a reporter to US shows to see what's going on so uh they did attend that CES and they actually took a photo um of the knitting machine in action at CES um so not only did we have the smoking gun not only do we have a toy, we have like a photo of the thing being used. Uh, and we have a photo of what looked to us like actually unique software that went with the unit. So like there's a lot of sort of evidence piling in um, as as we're as we're really digging into this uh, this toy and, and the connection between Royal and Nintendo and like trying to figure out, uh, you know, why there might be a knitting machine for the Nintendo, why there wasn't one, you know, what might've happened. Um, I was pretty so excited to see that, that photo from CES because this is the first time for me that it really felt like, Oh, this knitting machine actually worked. Like there right. was a working version of it. You can see in the photo that a woman is, is like drawing the carriage across the needle bed and you can see a knitted garment hanging from the bottom of the machine and it matches what's on screen and the screen looks like everything looks so realistic. This yeah. wasn't just like a plastic toy under glass, you know, it was like an idea, you know, it was actually working. And so seeing this like got me really, really excited. It's kind of like seeing a color photo from World War II or something, right? <laughs> Where it's like, oh, these were actually people. Real people. <laughs> <laughs> like they just live normal lives like me. Um yeah, I, I think I agree with you. It's like, oh, this is real. Like this was actually demonstrated. And let me be clear, I I I did ask former NOA, well, and current, I should say, um, NOA staff who were there uh, about this thing, and you know, there were some vague memories, but nothing substantial that that really aided us. Um, you know, like the the closest thing to a substantial memory was actually from Howard Phillips, uh, who you know, the person who kept that flyer. Um, he kind of described to me in vague terms how it worked, which was, you know, you set the you set the threads on the needles and you slide the thing to, to knit a row. You know, that's kind of, you know, the, the way he was able to describe it from memory. Um, but he was also able to describe and this is actually in his book. Um, I have it right here. What's it called? Hang on, everyone. I'm getting the book. Getting the book, it's upside down. Uh, Game Master Classified is is the 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 book that Howard Phillips and Matthew Taranto uh, just put out, and and he actually talks about uh, the knitting machine very briefly uh, in this book because um, 
one of his jobs was to demonstrate uh, a new product to potential like store buyers. So I, I believe he was meeting with probably at CES. Uh, it could have been private though, uh, with like a store buyer from Toys R Us um, to show the knitting machine and, and see if they were interested in in uh, in in purchasing because that's how businesses, especially in those days, sort of make decisions right it's like okay toys r us is on the hook for like forty thousand of these so i guess we should go ahead and and pursue it right um and uh he's then the 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 meeting did not go well (laughs) according to howard but um, and you were saying too that like at in in advance of these shows sometimes the team at nintendo of america didn't have a lot of time to prep Right. Uh, like they just got something and then the next day it was like, okay, show it. <laughs> it happens so often when I'm trying to understand the processes inside of Nintendo of America during the NES era. Um, the, the answer to everything is shrug stuff just showed up. <laughs> <laughs> so like when I'm trying to get to the bottom of like, what is third party submission? Did, you know, what did, did like, did Capcom send stuff for like quality check? Did, was there like concept approval? Like literally the answer is just like, I don't know, stuff would just show up and then we test it. <laughs> and, and like that, and that was true of the relationship between Nintendo Japan and America as well. Like products would just show up from Japan and they'd be like, Hey, do you want to see if you can market this? And, and I mean, that's how, for example, Nintendo decided which games to localize and bring over which first party games, like, Japan would just send over a box of Famicom carts and be like, hey, what do you want any of these? Uh, do you want to market any of these? And so this knitting machine was probably something very similar, like mm-hmm. probably just showed up one day in a box from Japan and, and it's a knitting machine. And they're like, hey, figure it out. Do you want this? Um, and, you know, we I, I think it's worth sort of pausing and, and talking about that, that flyer photo and, and, and something we discovered looking at it, too, um, which is that. Uh, it kind of doesn't make sense, right? Like right. you understand, well, now that we understand this toy and we like knitted some stuff, um, I should say my wife, Amanda, uh, also been on the show before, uh, knitted some stuff with the machine. Um, <laughs> we know from doing that, that the photo makes no sense. Do you kind of want to explain? There, yeah, there are a couple of things that don't quite add up. I had mentioned before that um, in comparing the photo in the flyer with the Royal machines that Frank found online, that the needle coloring was different. It was in groups of four. So four pink, four blue, four pink, four blue, alternating. And um, well, I thought that was a little odd because every knitting machine I've ever seen has done it in groups of five um, because the whole point of numbering the needles is to easily be able to count from, say, the center point. So center is zero and you want to say, oh, I'm going to go for 10 stitches this way. And, you know, so you go 5, 10, 15, you know, just to make it easier to count. Uh, Counting by fours is just less like natural, at at least for me, and not something I I just see a lot in in knitting machines. So that was a little odd. Um, And then we, you know, kind of as we're trying out the machine and sort of doing this like participatory history exercise um, I had actually flown to San Francisco to meet with Frank in person because um, I just felt like we need to be there and like put our hands on the machine and and like figure this out together. So we're looking at the flyer and we're looking at the machine and it's like odd that the the numbers on 
where there's typically numbers on the needles to kind of keep track of your stitches, it says A, B, C. And I thought that's right. a weird way to count stitches. Um, yeah, I mean, my it, thought my thought at first was like, okay, is this like, you know, American style versus Japanese <laughs> style or something? Like that was my thought early on. No, it's not, or is it's it not like ever been a style. For little kids, it can't count, but that didn't really make sense to me either. <laughs> like it, it just didn't really add up. Um, little kids who can't count yet should not be trying to operate this thing. <laughs> yeah, that's probably <laughs> true. Um, and then Frank, you were kind of the one who shared with me the, I think the missing puzzle piece that made yeah. all of this make sense. Yeah. So um, on the knitting machine. Okay. Close your eyes again. Let's go. Let's do Rachel's <laughs> eye exercise here. Close your <laughs> eyes. Um, so the, the needles that are on the machine um, that you hook the, the, the fabric into um, their position relative to the machine, like how far out they are from the machine is adjustable. Um, and it's, it's adjustable in three positions, uh, A, B, and C gasp. And, um, <laughs> on the very right side of the machine, um, on the, on the real one, the, the toy, um, you can see the letters A, B, and C to indicate, you know, those positions of, of the needles are sort of these pegs that you slide to adjust the needles. And so I was staring at the photo again, this time with my wife, Amanda. Um, and Amanda's like, I think, because it's just cut off in the photo. It's like just cut off. You can't really see it. But she's like, I think where the letters are supposed to be uh, on the toy, uh, I think that's a number 15 on, on, <laughs> on the Nintendo, the, the photo on the flyer. And she's like, I think whoever decorated this just messed up and switched where the letters go and where the numbers go. And uh, I think we are like 1000% convinced yeah. that's what happened. Right. I think of it as like, uh, you know, imagine you get a Gundam kit or a, a miniature kit and it comes with a bunch of decals, but no yeah. instructions. Right. <laughs> I, I think that must be what happened with the knitting machine is they got a bunch of decals and some of them said five, 10, 15 and some said ABC and they went, oh, I don't know how a knitting machine works. Just make it make sense. And especially paired with the fact that the needles were in pairs of four, right. then putting the five stickers doesn't make sense. But then also I'm like, the fabric, why? The fabric also isn't even hooked to it, right? It's just like tucked under the machine. Yeah. In the photo <laughs> uh, for the flyer, there is like a, what looks like a sleeve, a knitted sleeve or something that has supposedly been knitted by the knitting machine. However, like they're not attached to the hooks at all. And the NES isn't powered on. Um, so, <laughs> so clearly just a marketing shot, unlike the other mm -hmm. one where we have a photo of an actual human being, uh, knitting something with it. Uh, this seems to be a very staged photo, uh, from, uh, people who perhaps didn't quite understand how the machine worked. Um, I feel like they could have benefited from having someone with some knitting machine experience <laughs> help out. But. Well, Nintendo of America in like late 86 is, I don't know, 50 employees total, you know, right, like, and right. like most of them are in the warehouse. You know, so. And I, I don't think that knitting machines were very popular in right. the U.S., um, especially for as like a hobbyist thing. Um, knit, in the U.S., at least, the late 80s and early 90s was like the worst time for knitting. It was incredibly untrendy. Um, <laughs> yarn crafts had been very popular in the 70s, macrame and crochet and, you know, all of that. And it, it came back. There was a revival in the 2000s. 
but between those decades, knitting was like super uncool. So not a lot of kind of hobbyist knitting machines at that time. And there just wasn't a lot of popularity. So it doesn't really surprise me that there wasn't much familiarity with it. And it also matches um, a story that I was told, not about the knitting machine, but just about um, Nintendo of America's sort of hardware designers, decorators, I don't know. So um, I mentioned in in our show about the Strong Museum's expansion, um, talking to Don James, uh, who is Nintendo of America's uh, most tenured employee at 41 years. Um, it's just crazy to me. Um, and he told me a story. I might have told it on the episode. I don't remember. But he, he was saying that, you know, again, stuff just showed up, right? And so the NES, the unit, like like imagine an NES, an American NES. Um, when that first showed up, the final design of it, it was from Japan, but it just showed up as a solid colored mold, right? It was just like, we have plastic mold. This is the NES. This is, this is your unit. You're going to sell this. Um, the job, uh, the jobs of, of that division, um, that uh, whatever that division was called, I'm not sure, but, but it was, uh, Don James and, and Lance Barr, uh, their job was to sort of decorate the hardware. Um, so for example, deciding that the bottom half of the NES is dark gray, right? Deciding the, the font to use the, the, the spacing, the, the color of the font being red, right? Um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of black vent on the side, like their job was to sort of decorate this solid colored, uh, mold that probably included the controller as well, right? Like, like designing the decal that goes on the controller. Um, and he explained to me when when I was talking to him at the Strong uh, that they decorated the NES on a 24-hour deadline, like in time for a photo shoot or CES appearance or something like that. And he's like, yeah, and that, that, that crunch design is what shipped. Like, that's just the NES. <laughs> and so, um, you know, we have historical precedent for the people who decorate this hardware uh, doing so uh, under severe time constraints. So I can see that applying here, right? Where they just get this, they get a bunch of decals and, and this plastic thing and it's like decorate it how you want it. And they don't have time to like learn how a knitting machine works. They, there's no internet yet, Mm -hmm. you know, to go, you can't go Google this. So I think they just kind of did their best for the sake of a photo shoot for this flyer. That's so wild. It reminds me of a story. I think it was the theme song to the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cartoon. The lyrics were like written in the cab on the way to the recording studio. <laughs> so I think so sometimes it's just does like... machines. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's a, it's a solid line. Uh, there's something about that time constraint that can kind of squeeze creativity out of nowhere. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Okay, so we're kind of ga- gathering evidence at this point. And, um, you know, I should say that uh, we didn't mention this, but um, Rachel and I are fresh off of giving uh, a presentation about this research uh, at Long Island Retro Gaming Expo. What a fun um, event. Oh, it was so awesome. Um, great. Yeah, that was your first in-person one. Is that right? Uh, no, I was oh, right. there in 2017 tabling. I was selling NES Homebrew uh, with some pals. So I had right. been as as a vendor, but not as a speaker. 
it's such a cool show. Uh, if anyone hasn't gone and, and you're in the area, uh, try to make it next year. It's, it's the only retro game show I've ever been in that's, uh, that takes over an aviation museum. <laughs> so it is, you, you are playing like very well curated, interesting old video game hardware as like biplanes and astronauts are floating above you. It's really, <laughs> really interesting. And, and if you're a speaker, uh, you get to speak, uh, to an IMAX uh, crowd. <laughs> we, Rachel and I were the IMAX screen. We were projecting uh, the, the, the flyer you've been imagining this whole show. Mm-hmm. Um, we were projecting that in IMAX <laughs> as we spoke. Um, but yeah, so we kind of went through this process uh, and, and, and explained our research. Um, but we're going to kind of power through this a little bit uh, for the sake of audio because we don't have a lot of... Uh, we don't have any visuals to show you, but um, so essentially we had all this evidence in front of us, right? We knew that Royal patented a thing. We knew they released a disc. We knew that uh, Nintendo of America photographed uh, a thing for a flyer. We knew they then showed it at CES. Um, and we know essentially that the machine didn't come out uh, for the Nintendo, but in 88, a similar model did. So that's that. And, and so that's sort of the body of evidence that's in front of us. And, um, so there's kind of two ways of approaching research like this, right? It's like sort of examining, uh, uh, sometimes house MD style, the documents in front of <laughs> yeah, you, the documents, the paratexts, <laughs> the newspaper articles, all of that. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and then, then there's also the sort of like, uh, the other side of it is the sort of making things like learning through trying it out. Um, that's something that, you know, as as a historian, like I, I like to make NES games to sort of go through that experience personally of understanding, like, how, you know, what were the technical constraints? How were these games made? Um, and that that was kind of the approach I wanted to take with um, sort of uh, understanding the Nintendo knitting machine is like, can I build one? Okay, we've got a royal knitting machine. Can we hack it? Can we attach a little plunger on the back of it. Um, can we look at the ROM for the Super Mario sweater game that came out and see, are there some clues in here that tell us that this might have been, you know, intended to go with a knitting machine? Um, yeah. Can we, can we prototype this or, or just sort of imagine what it would have been like if it had come out? Um, so I think those, those things will uncover ideas that the documents alone don't well and a lot of your art um is centered around this idea of sort of an alternate history like a what if right yep yeah exactly um so that's uh i knew i found the right partner with this thing (laughs) (laughs) so um let's just kind of go through the evidence as we have it right so like we knew about this patent we found this patent we knew it was filed by Royal, not Nintendo, uh, that it is for the hardware and the software. Cause I don't know if, uh, oh, I think we did mention this. Yeah. yeah, there, yeah. There's a, there's a line drawing in the patent that is, uh, mostly a match for the Mario sweater disc. Um, and we knew that, uh, the drawings looked very Famicom. So we, we knew at least in 86 that this was definitely a Famicom based, uh, machine and piece of software. Um, and, and we knew essentially about the sort of pinball flipper, uh, pressing the button, um, as, as the, the input mechanism. Um, so then our next body, our next piece of evidence, uh, I'll kick it over to you would be the, 
not only the sweater disc, but the pattern book that came out at the same time, which yep, we haven't exactly. mentioned yet. Yeah. So there was this uh, Super Mario sweater software um, from Royal. And, I, and actually, we haven't said this part yet, but Royal actually released two pieces of knitting software for the Famicom. So we've been talking about Super Mario sweater, but there was another one that was just about teaching hand knitting techniques. And both of those, you know, published by Royal. Um, we also know of a Super Mario sweater pattern book, and it it has kind of teasers in the book for the Famicom disc. Like, hey, you can order this Famicom disc. It also has some of those patterns just printed, and you can see um, photos of them. One interesting thing... I think it thing, might be a match, actually. It might be wrong, but I think every pattern on the disc is in the It story. is. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't recall. It seemed like one of them had more patterns than the other, but... Got it, okay. Yeah, it, it, it's pretty close, though. It's it's pretty clear that this it is a good match for for the disc. Although I will say, <laughs> I did a little bit of, like... I, I was woken up at like four in the morning the night before our talk and I, I'm doing some like manual forensics and even the manual for the disc doesn't match up with the patterns exactly. So I think there were a couple revisions. It wouldn't Got surprise it. me if there are a few differences, but more or less, it, it's pretty clear that this pattern book kind of is an accompaniment to the disc. Um and one one interesting thing about the the patterns in the magazine, and and this is true of the software too, is that the patterns are are pretty clearly meant for apparel for young children, like probably age six and under. Um, and the pattern book is for adults who would be making these garments, uh, maybe parents. Um, and so that that kind of answers a question about you know who is a knitting machine for? Is it kids making their own clothes is it adults making clothes for kids and at least in the context of the famicom disc that came out in the pattern book the answer is this was for adults making clothing for for small children although confusingly there is a a tv commercial for the disc and there is a it, it does show a, a child knitting. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then, and then this also gets me thinking about something I mentioned earlier of the, the flyer machine having more pins being a lot larger than the toys that actually came out. It made me think, well, maybe they were, they made the machine bigger for the NES because they were imagining kids might be making their own clothes and they'd need to be bigger than say something that a six-year-old could fit in. Right. Um, we don't have any any evidence of that, but um, yeah, we we don't know whether Nintendo would have marketed this to adults or to um, kids. Yeah, I mean, we do know that um, the photo from CES uh, is is an adult uh, a woman, <laughs> um, but that's all we know in terms of like what NOA's vision, right? For for like how they wanted you to perceive someone. Uh, uh, using this was uh, uh, a woman who uh, I don't know, she's dressed in like a conservative blue dress, right? Like maybe, maybe there's something worth examining there even in terms of like what, like she has a pearl necklace on, right? Like, like this, this strikes me as like an, an archetype of someone who might be knitting in 1987. That's so interesting. Cause I, I, I don't think the outfit had really registered, but at the same CES, they showed the, the power pad or what, right. what was it called at the, the time? Bandai fun, fun family fitness, fitness fun. fun <laughs> pad. Yeah. 
Um, but they and they had um, someone in like aerobics garb demoing that. So there was a sense of costuming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. The research continues live on the Video Game History Hour. Um, something I think is very worth mentioning about the disc, though. Um, maybe you were about to say this. Nope. You, uh, you take it away. I yeah, was going uh, to hand it to you. <laughs> so we do have forensic evidence um, that the software on the disc was made at Nintendo. Like like Nintendo's internal whatever R and D division it was that was doing disc system games. Uh, the forensic evidence being uh, the sound driver, um, which is kind of a fingerprint uh, for for a lot of research into which teams did which games. Uh, so we know that the sound driver for the disc is the same as, for example, Zelda Two. Uh, so we believe it was the same composer and therefore likely engineered inside of Nintendo, which further strengthens this partnership. Um, and so, yeah, so that, that was a, that was a very clear piece of evidence, um, um, that, that there was this sort of like inherent partnership partnership here. This wasn't just one licensing to the other. It seemed like there was give and take on both sides. Yep. And this, this pattern book and disc both come out in 86. So that predates CES. Right. Um, the question remains is like, well, actually, a question I think that hasn't that someone might be asking that we haven't answered is, would this disc have worked with the machine? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I I didn't have a hypothesis on this going into the project, but as I started to use the machine and the software more intentfully, I realized that the the Mario sweater software was incompatible with machine knitting. So as it, the version that came out is for hand knitting. And uh, while the patterns could be the same, uh, a lot of the functionality of the software will be different. So for example, when you're hand knitting a garment, you, um, you work from right to left, and then you flip it over and you do all the stitches in reverse from right to left. So you work the front of the garment, flip it over, you work the back of the garment. On machine knitting, you don't do that. You're always working from the front. And so the movement of the rows, the directionality, and the stitch designations will all be different for hand knitting versus machine knitting because in one, you're working always on the same side of the garment. On the other, you're flipping it over after every row. So what that tells me is that this software would need significant changes to be compatible with a knitting machine. And of course, the question I have that I don't think we have the answer to is, well, were they intending for this to come out with a knitting machine and then they changed it to hand knitting? Or did they start with hand knitting and then go to machine? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think yeah. we have any evidence for one way or the other. We don't have, yeah, nothing solid for sure. We do have this, uh, a strange amount of unused graphic banks you know, in the disc, which is like, hmm, did they delete some things? Was this, you know, a revision to a, a machine piece of soft and then and, and it, and and they just kind of whittled it down. We're not sure. We have no idea. Um, okay, so with all that in mind, sort of looking at the CES, so so sometime you know around or after the discs publication, we know that a photo was taken uh, at NOA for this machine um, for used for this flyer, right? Um, so so going back to your your mind palace here and and imagining this machine photo again. Um, 
So worth mentioning that this is the only thing Nintendo ever published about this machine, period. We don't know of like a press release. We don't know of any coverage in Japan even. We just know that they, they published this flyer and they showed it at the, the show and that's it. Um, so uh, I think it's worth noting that this flyer, um, the, the software on screen uh, appears to be a 100% match for Mario Sweater, which again, um, is evidence that like the, the staged photo is not of a machine functioning with software. Right. Right. I mean, number one, this would have been Famicom disc system. So sure. Which is I why mean, the Nintendo's not on. Cause <laughs> Nintendo's not, not on. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, right. The, the directionality of the stitches is, is reversed. This wouldn't really be that helpful from a machine knitting. Right. So we know again, like that the photos taken with the Famicom disc software, um, so okay, so that brings us to the 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 photo from the show, right? We so looking at this photo, uh, again, conservative dress woman, pearl necklace, <laughs> knitting on a machine with a Nintendo. Um, she ha- she is knitting, and there's software on the screen um, that um, you actually questioned initially whether it might have been like you know like like a, like a fakey screen. But I you, thought you- it might be a fakey screen. Yeah. Um- it it looked, I don't know. It was just to me the fact that the flyer had the existing software made me think, you know, well they they just did the bare minimum to switch it up. And seeing this flyer, uh, the CES flyer, or sorry, the CES photo, there's actually a representation of the knitting machine on screen is significantly different. And I know it's it's not trivial to update an NES game. Like, <laughs> you know, there's some work that goes into that. So my first thought when I saw this photo is like, oh, that knitting machine overlay, is that is that like a piece of acetate that they stuck to the screen? <laughs> um, it was kind of going back to the like Vectrex uh, methodology of screen overlays. Um, and well, and, and that- there, there was even a false uh, exciting moment where I realized there was like a transparent thing in the box with the machine. Yes. Got, but it's like, no, there, it's, it's a, it's a trans, <laughs> there's a transparent acetate ruler that looks a lot like the overlay on screen. And I thought, Oh my God, they just stuck a, <laughs> they stuck a ruler <laughs> to the screen and made it look like an NES game. So at that point I actually got out my NES development tools and tried to make kind of a one-for-one recreation of what was on screen uh, to see, you know, are the dimensions right? Are the colors, you know, feasible for the NES? And I found, yeah, they were feasible. Um, They reused a lot of tiles that were in the original software. Mm -hmm. Um, But then they had some tiles that I did not find in the ROM. So it looked like there were new graphics added to create that knitting machine. But there is sort of this telltale like box on the upper right um, that tells us that it's at least like using some tiles. Yeah, Yeah. same. Exactly. Right. So. But the um, pattern is not a pattern that's in Mario sweater. Right. (laughs) Which is also interesting. Yeah. So what were the patterns on there? We need a ROM dump. We got to see the patterns. Right. Um, God, I bet that's extremely lost. I guess I'm I'm assuming that's just gone, gone. Um, And then so. You know, we know that this is shown at CES. We know they don't market the thing. Um, and we sort of mentioned earlier that they they scrubbed the Famicom from their toy packaging. But um, funny enough, later in 87, they actually scrub 
the Famicom drawings out of their updated patent for the machine, right? Yep. Yeah, so in 87, they release a U.S. patent, which is sort of interesting to me. Um, I would expect that if Royal filed a U.S. patent, they were expecting to sell something in the U.S. Um, Could it be that they were... Were they filing this thinking that a Nintendo Entertainment System collab was going to happen? Or were they filing this thinking they might release a toy without without the NES, but in the U.S.? Um, but yeah, so they, they released this new patent in 87, and they update it so that it doesn't just function as a row counter, but also as a stitch counter. So they have a little drawing with a, a sensor, like electromagnetic sensor or something that would trigger after every stitch, which is kind of cool. Um, but now the there is kind of a video game controller caddy, but the controller no longer looks like a Famicom or an NES. Yeah. It it's looks sort like of this generic plunger generic. on a stick. You know? It's like an analog stick only on the right. Yeah. So like nothing, basically. <laughs> you know what? It's I think it's uh I think it's a switch controller. I think it's one half of a switch. It's a ColecoVision controller turned on its side. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this patent, you know, mid-87, it, it, it kind of suggests possibly that they're like, mm, this deal's not happening, but maybe Royal's still interested in this notion of computer-aided knitting, right? And and maybe they're filing a patent hoping to find another partner. Maybe they had another partner and that fell through too. We do not know. We don't know anyone who worked at Royal. Um, I don't even know how to find that other than the person who filed the patent who's probably like 3,000 years old at this point. Um, and in Japan, I don't know how to find that. Um, so then our final body of evidence, again, is the toy. Um, again, we as we noted that it's very similar looking. It's uh, practically identical, really, to the to the photo other than like some some of the shape of like the carriage and things like that. Uh, the toy has 50 pins total. As you noted, the Nintendo prototype had 60. It's a larger one. Um, it's just and- like the NES and Famicom cartridges. You know, they had to have a different number of pins in Japan and the U.S. Oh, that's exactly it. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so gathering all this up, right, putting it all together. Um, what have we learned, if anything? Right. Like, so, <laughs> yeah, did this exercise result in anything other than a trip to Long Island for us um, and this podcast? Um, I think so. So really, you know, at this point, as an historian, you, you kind of put the hard facts in front of you um, and then you kind of put the questions down and then you can maybe craft a narrative, but it's just theoretical. Um, I think the one that we came up with, it feels right to me, right? So... Just to review the facts, um, we know that Royal patented knitting hardware that worked with a computer or game console, right? They, they, they patented the idea of uh, a knitting machine that talked to a computer that showed you a knitting pattern on screen. Um, we know that uh, Royal published knitting software on the Famicom with Nintendo. Um, we know that they made a toy, right? And we know that the prototype Nintendo knitting machine very closely resembles that toy. Um, and uh, and just it's worth stating again, we know that the Nintendo knitting machine was never sold. Like it's never been seen or anything like that. But kind of, what don't we know at this point? Yeah, so I think the questions we still have, um, and, and we have our own theories and, and ideas about the answers, but I think the things we don't really know for sure Number one, how the disc was sold. 
uh, like Frank mentioned, it seems like there wasn't a barcode on this thing. So how was it sold exactly? Was it mail order? To me, I think even if it was sold in a hobby shop, it would benefit from a barcode. I'm not right, sure. Yeah. So, so maybe it was mail order only or, or something like that. Um, I think, you know, a, a question I asked a few moments ago is like, which came first, the n- machine knitting or hand knitting, right? Was this suite of software, you know, we have this Mario sweater, we have the hand knitting disc. Uh, was it intended to be compatible with a knitting machine? Maybe you could switch modes or maybe there was going to be a third disc. Right. Or maybe it was meant to be knitting with a machine and then that got canceled and they reworked it to be hand knitting. Like, I don't know. I would love to, I would love to know. Um, I think another thing we're not certain about is whether um, the knitting machine. So, you know, we have this flyer from CES in the US, but we don't know whether the knitting machine was ever, you know, demonstrated or or if it went through a similar trial in Japan. Um, We have pretty good evidence that the prototype was developed in Japan because the caddy fits a Famicom Mm -hmm. controller, not an NES controller. Mm -hmm. And so that makes you think that at least someone was shown this prototype. I don't know if it ever got outside of Nintendo headquarters or not. Oh, actually, we do. We do know uh, also um, that uh, I, I spoke to Alan Weiss, who produced the NES games at Broderbund, um, and he told me they that uh, when they were visiting Nintendo Japan, uh, Japan demonstrated the knitting machine to them to see if they were interested in making the software. So oh, we wow. we know that uh, yeah, fr- fresh new uh, new new <laughs> new insight here. Um, so so in, but Broderbund said no. They or? said no. Okay. Yeah. They, they 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 didn't feel like it would be a fit for a U.S. audience, so they passed. Rude. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then I, I guess the other you know kind of outstanding question that we've been asking is like, how did Royal and Nintendo get together? Um, right. Was you know did Nintendo approach Royal? Was this Royal's idea? Was Royal doing knitting stuff before this? Um, we know that there are other Royal branded knitting products, but most of what we can find is. 88 or later, but then again, it's, it's hard to find things earlier than that just because those things are less likely to be on online catalogs and things. Right. Like for all we know, um, there's an even closer match to the Nintendo knitting machine that was sold contemporary, contemporaneously, contemporaneously (laughs) (laughs) at the same time. Um, I almost want to do like a porky pig thing, you know, (laughs) stumble over it and say at the same time. Um, like we don't know, like we are relying on, um, things that humans have typed on the internet and then, uh, uh, internet robots scraping that text. You know what I mean? So like the only reason we even found the toys that we found, are that uh, people correctly listed them on Yahoo Japan auctions with the actual name of the toy, which I found there might be a different name for a toy. Um, Also, Royal, you know, self-published this toy that we have. Um, Most of Royal's output toy-wise is actually through other companies like Bondi. Uh, Bondi does a lot of Royal's, you know, Royal makes toys that Bondi sells. So there could be a toy knitting machine that, maybe someone else sold that is even an even closer match. We just don't know because we're relying on just, you know, our own, you know, typing things into Google and stuff like that. I did. I don't know if you did this too. I think you might have. Um, 
I did just like occasionally go to Yahoo Japan auctions and just look at any knitting toy that mm-hmm. was on there um, yeah. just to see if I could find something else. I did not. Yeah. Interestingly, knitting, to- knitting toys are still being made in Japan. Yeah, that's right. This like there, there's a there's a very popular model. I can't recall the number off the top of my head, but you know the the sort of Japanese style knitting machine um, is still something you can buy new, and it's fundamentally the same machine uh, uh, that the toy was. It's just a it's just a much better version. But then also to your point, there's still these sort of like tiny toy knitting machines, mostly for kids, right? Mm-hmm. Um. Okay, so with the facts and with the unknowns, I mean, this is sort of our rough timeline of, of what we think happened here. Um, so somewhere around 85, Nintendo and Royal partner up to create a knitting machine peripheral and game for the Famicom. Um, that's, you know, that's just based on when the, the patent was filed and, and when the machine came out and just how much time would have needed to have passed, right? We think it's around 85 this partnership happens. Again, we don't know if this was announced. You know, for all I know, like the the, the Nikai business paper has an article about this partnership somewhere, right? But we don't know. Um, so in 86, uh, we believe potentially that the machine was canceled in Japan. Um, and And that Japan maybe sent the machine to Nintendo of America going like, Hey, can you guys market this, right? And and they couldn't. Um what do you think might have happened from here? Yeah, so basically the knitting hardware doesn't take off in Japan, doesn't take off in, in the US. And Royal thinks, well, we've still got this patent and we've we've built this thing. So they refile the patent, scrubbing Nintendo out of it, scrubbing the Famicom looking controllers. And uh, in 88, they release a standalone knitting toy, right? They put all this work into designing it. Um, and so they they sell it. And that's that's the toy that Frank and I now possess, thanks to some deep Googling and <laughs> Japanese auction watching. Um, and then, you know, from there on, we see Royal continue to make knitting machines. They, you know, as Frank mentioned, release one under the Bandai name in 1990. Um, so that's kind of kind of where we think it it ends is royal takes takes their toy and, <laughs> and sells it without nintendo you know what i like about this timeline is that it makes our toys like actually like the end result of the nintendo knitting machine you know like mm-hmm. it's not a coincidence it's not a parallel thing it's like no this is the released nintendo knitting machine for all intents and purposes right right so we own the- those you don't this is just a theoretical timeline, though. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's it's a good one. I'm still not sure what the order of the knitting machine versus hand knitting was. I'm still not sure whether Nintendo approached Royal or Royal approached Nintendo. But it's a pretty good but theoretical timeline of what could have happened. And I think, Frank, we've talked about the fact that things could have gone quite differently. Yeah, Um yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I, I think at this point, I kind of re- want to rewind because I think a lot of people, their their initial take on this is like, oh, that's a goofy idea. You know, <laughs> like, like uh, an intended, a knitting machine for the Nintendo. Like, that, that's cute, but that doesn't make sense. But um, I, I think it could have made sense. So I, I, I kind of want to take you back to uh, that fateful CES, the first and only time uh people outside of nintendo 
uh, or like their partners like Rotterbund had, had ever seen the thing, right? Um, that that CES was January 87. Um, to put this in perspective, the Nintendo just had its, the NES, sorry, the Nintendo Entertainment System just had its first Christmas. Yes, yeah, there was a test market Christmas in 85, only in New York. We don't really count that when we're when we're talking about you know the the actual launch of the system like that was just a test but christmas 86 is the first time it's available around the country i think at that point it had only been out around the country for months you know not years months uh and so this is still a very new product uh not only for like the general consumer but for nintendo and and indeed like christmas 86 is the christmas of are video games coming back or not um we had just gone through the industry crash. Uh, there hadn't been, you know, very many new video games in years. It was a really risky product sector that most retailers abandoned um, after the gold rush of the early 80s. And so no one really knew, like, our video games coming back. But uh, Christmas 86, uh, you have the NES coming out. Uh, you have the Sega Master System and you have the Atari 7800. Like, they are all launching at the same time. So we're at a time where, like, Okay, we don't know if video games are coming back. Um, and if they come back, we're not entirely sure who's even going to buy them or who they're for, right? We don't know who the audience is. We can assume that it's a the same as the early 80s, but it might be new now. And um, I think Nintendo of America um, was approaching this as if the audience was new um, based on how they launched the NES. The NES came with mandatory <laughs> it came with the robot and the gun it came with robot rob the robot and the zapper um and, and i think it, they were they were intentionally trying to not make it seem like just a video game console right right it's like they were always like it's so much more than a video game you know because they didn't want to fall into that same trap that had caused the crash some years prior they're making it look more like it's an entertainment system, right? It's integrated into the, it's right next to your VCR. It's integrated into your home entertainment system. It, it does so many more things than just video games. And it's, it's, you know, it looks like part of their strategy was having these peripherals to keep the hardware fresh and maybe appeal to different audiences. Yeah. I mean, I often, um, and I think I've even written these words myself, uh, seen this referred to as maybe like a Trojan horse, right? To, to get uh, a video game system in home is again, is to be like, no, it's a toy with a robot. But I, I, I think that's reductive. Um, I, I think it's actually more likely that that was the thinking at the time that maybe the, the Nintendo entertainment system was the brains uh, for a series of products that interact with it. Right. Um, and you know, we have evidence of Nintendo of America um, thinking this way um, with a lot of peripherals that they, a lot of other peripherals, I should say, that they showed at, at CES shows prior to this and didn't come out with. So, like, when they first, first showed the NES here, when they were calling it the AVS, um, they had a computer keyboard for programming your own games. They had a music keyboard for like learning music unrelated to the later uh, Miracle Piano teaching system. If you're familiar, that was years later in a different company. But Nintendo itself was was thinking about this. Um, they had uh, a cassette drive 
uh, add-on for the NES that, that was for like backing up. Um, well, first of all, the, the games you programmed, you could back up on a cassette, but also you could like save your games externally on cassette or like excite bike actually shipped with uh with this with this feature in it even though the thing doesn't exist so if, if you if you make your own track in excite bike and you try to save it it actually is attempting to audio out to a cassette drive that was never released so i, I find that kind of interesting that it's is like, so cool <laughs> yeah isn't that it's like like talking to a ghost or something you know? <laughs> um so again like it's it is you know we're at the first Christmas for the NES. We don't know what the system is. We don't know who's buying it. We don't even know if anyone bought it yet. You know what I mean? Like those numbers aren't mm-hmm. probably aren't even in yet. So, um, so it's, is it really that weird um, that at the consumer electronics show where they're talking to store buyers and, and showing directions that they're thinking of taking this thing? Is it really that weird to have a knitting machine, especially when, um, as you mentioned earlier, Rachel, there is one other piece of hardware, another piece of hardware add-on that was at Nintendo's booth, which was uh, Bondi's uh, family trainer pad thing, like the, the 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 pad that goes on the floor that you run on, whatever they, mm-hmm. whatever Bondi's version of that was that Nintendo later retooled and, and called the Power Pad. So, I mean, you know, I, I'm kind of looking at, at the slide of these two photos side by side, and and you kind of mentioned this earlier, right, Rachel? But it's like you almost have like costumed actresses um, mm-hmm. interacting with these things. Yep. Yeah. I, I think too, like a question I keep coming back to is sort of, were they targeting the sort of elementary middle school player or were they thinking about opening this up to a variety of ages? Were they imagining that this is something that, Oh, the parents will be interested in using. Um, and and I don't know. This is kind of part of my thought experiment that and this this kind of rabbit hole that I went down of how would Nintendo have marketed this? Um, you know, when we look at at the, the the true timeline of what actually happened with Nintendo, they really never did market directly to adults. Um, I think you know a couple years in, they found their groove, and it was with kids and. We do see some advertisements with adults, but usually they're sort of like a hokey kind of parodies or, um, you know, the, uh, the adult just doesn't understand, you know, oh, Apple Jacks. <laughs> it's like, it's kind of this out of touch. It's like apples. <laughs> it's out of touch parent. Um, but, but I'm curious if, you know, in 86, 87, if they were thinking, um, they were really thinking about reaching everyone in the family, right? The family computer, Famicom. Um, so I don't know. That's a big mystery to me. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we don't know exactly who they were marketing to, but again, like kind of to your point, um, we don't, we don't know at this point, right? Like they don't know who they're marketing to necessarily. Like they, they probably have a good idea, but they're probably sort of testing the waters to see if, yeah, if this is a computer for the whole family, right? Like if, you know, like there's, there's, you know, maybe like dad does his taxes or something on this, you know, like, like could be a direction they're going in. You know, what, what this made me think of is um, when Barbie fashion designer came out, uh, was a, a PC game. Um, the toy retailers like Toys R Us really struggled with Barbie fashion designer software because 
they thought, well, it's Barbie, so it should go with the Barbie dolls and it should go in the girl toy aisle, but it's software. So maybe it should go in the software aisle, but girls will never go to, you know, their <laughs> thinking was girls will never walk down the software aisle. And it, it really became this problem of the retailers didn't know where to put it. Toys R Us said, there's not a place in our store for this, right? And this was like an issue when the software first released. I wouldn't be surprised if a similar line of mm -hmm. thinking informed, you know, a retailer like Toys R Us saying, where are we going to sell a knitting machine in our Toys R Us right. store, right? There was, they used to have a video game aisle and it, you know, from their perspective, they may have thought, well, why would anyone come into a toy store to get a knitting machine? Right. And like, why would anyone looking at video games buy a knitting <laughs> machine? So does this go in the girl's aisle, right? Like, I mean, th this sounds, you know, this might sound at a distance like a small problem, but I actually think that like, especially at this time where where the, the entire path to discovery for products is walking a store, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, I, I actually think that is really a, a huge, huge problem um, that for all we know, you know, that that might have been uh, hesitation on Toys R Us's part because we know they met with Toys R Us, literally Toys R Us even though that was your Barbie example, like we know that is an example to, to pull from for the Nintendo knitting machine. And we know that Toys R Us passed and it could have been for those reasons. And we know the retailers had a lot of sway. Uh, they needed to know when consoles were coming out, when games were coming out, because they had to prep their retail aisles, you know, weeks or months in advance. Um, there's that famous story. What is it? Sega Dreamcast or one of those that that released... It didn't match up with the real retailer's expectations. The retailers said, "Fine, we're not giving you any prime real estate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we didn't. We didn't have enough time. I think they released early, and the oh, retailer said, Saturn, the Saturn, Saturn, the, Saturn. Yeah. Um, the retailer said, "All right, well, sorry, <laughs> you're not getting any help from us. I think the the it's hard to imagine now, but those brick and mortar stores really had a lot of sway yeah. with the market and in turn the manufacturing." Yeah. And I mean, another thing to keep in mind here is early 87, you know, Nintendo doesn't even have a direct to consumer line yet. There's like Nintendo power hasn't started, you know, like I think the first issue of fun club news is around this time, right? which is just like, Hey kids, do you know about super Mario brothers? You know? So like, <laughs> like the path to Nintendo, even direct marketing this thing, like it, like it's retailer or nothing um, for something like this at this time. So I don't know. It, it makes all the sense in the world that this never came out. It also would have made sense if it had. Um, I don't think it would have worked, honestly. Um, but I, I think it would have, it, it, it would not have been completely stupid to have attempted this to see if this like increases their market, which they don't even know what it is yet. Yep. Yep. And of course I'm sitting here racking my brain thinking, how could this have worked? How mm -hmm. could Nintendo have made this successful? And I think where my mind kept going is like, I wish they had done this for the GameCube or the Wii, right? The you know because knitting got cool again. Because right? knitting got cool again, and I think you had a little bit more diverse uh, age range, you know, on the GameCube and especially the Wii. Of course, the Wii was really notable for 
bringing in players of all ages. Um, and they did start marketing to players of all ages. Um, but yeah, I think my my mind started going down this path of like, all right, can I make this Nintendo knitting machine for the GameCube or for the Wii? <laughs> like, I gotta I gotta brush up on my like GameCube homebrew skills. But uh, part of me feels like that would have been really the avenue of success is is when knitting got cool again, at least in the U.S. Yeah, and I can't help but think about the Wii because. Um... When it when it was first coming out, um, I was really excited about it because I actually it's funny this is kind of kind of coming full circle. Like I actually thought the Wii might be the brains for weird hardware because mm-hmm. it came with this wireless remote that had like a port on it. You know what I mean? So like for example, they, they like the Guitar Hero guitars on the Wii, right? You just plug the controller into it and that's all and that's all it needs to interact with the system. It's it's like most of the guts don't have to be in the guitar. And, and uh, you know, like the train simulator controllers in Japan were kind of the same things. You have your all, all your levers and stuff, but most of the, the the ways of interacting with the system are in the controller that came with the system. So I could totally see, you know, a knitting machine, maybe even a mechanical one because the system can talk to the controller as well that is wireless and just hooks into a Wii, Wii controller and that's how it communicates back and forth with the system. And I then you totally get, you that. get your own like pattern, you know, make your own patterns. If you think oh, of like yeah. animal crossing clothing designer, but you get to make your real, <laughs> real clothing. Oh yeah. And you could draw with the Wii mode and it's all shaky. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, God, any, anything else you want to end on here or, or did we sort of, uh, wrap up everything we know about the knitting machine? I mean, is there anywhere else you want to take this? Yeah, I mean, I I think for me now that I've got the physical knitting machine, I've got that little Rob part. I do I do want to make my own kind of working prototype of the thing. I want to I want to knit a sweater on it. I want to knit my Super Mario sweater. Um, do you want the same pattern I do, the one that's on the cover? Uh, no, I really like the. There's one with like Princess Peach that's kind of like a a cardigan. Yeah, I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that one. Of course, the the largest size I can get it in with the existing software is like, you know, five inches across. But <laughs> I could I could get my ROM hacking tools out, and I've I've actually already started to play with a little bit of ROM hacking on this thing to get it to where it could be functional with a larger machine and something that you could uh you could hack together out of a an old Rob part and a, a Royal knitting machine from 1988. You know, if you have those things on hand. Yeah. If, if you, if you find <laughs> the thing that we've only found two of ever, um, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> the software will exist for you. Um, and I don't know. So, I mean, I, I have some dumb ideas that are very kind Ooh. of Adam Savagey, right. Where it's like, okay. okay, using this mold that we have, uh, this toy, can we like, make our own molds to increase this to 60 pins you know can we, mm. can we like can we you know in in the way that that he sort of like obsesses over recreating like a movie prop right mm-hmm. like can we with the tools that we have and and like putting a microscope up to the the photo like can we actually create the nintendo knitting machine as close as we can to the the photo that's where my lizard brain goes Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't believe I will do that, but it is possible. Yeah. yeah. It is possible to 3d scan this thing and make a 60 pin version and color the pins to match what was in the flyer. And, 
Um, but would I do the incorrect labeling? That's the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or would I recolor it the way that I suspected they would do to be like red and gray, like the rest of their line? I don't know. Um, well, gosh, this is a lot of fun again. Um, so, so, uh, thank you so much, Rachel, for, uh, joining me here on the video game history hour. Um, everyone go check out, uh, Rachel's, uh, project the femicom museum uh which is how i got to know her which is at femicom.org that's f-e-m-i-c-o-m.org um but other than that uh where would you like people to find you on the internet gosh um i haven't been too active on social media these days but if you look up femicom museum uh you can find i've i've got a semi-dormant twitter at femicom museum i'm also on tiktok and uh you can keep tabs on my personal projects at nobadmemories.com. And I'm on, on Twitter, again, not too much these days, but Party Time Hexcellent, H-X-L-N-T. <laughs> um, and we will link to all of these things in our show notes at uh, gamehistory.org. Um, gosh, thanks again, Rachel. This is fun. Had a blast. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter at Game History Hour or email us at podcast at gamehistory.org. Did you know that the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at gamehistory.org slash donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Michael Carroll. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.